The Times and Tunes of Irving Berlin. everyone sorry oh that's the time of fun oh just a moment i'll get it fixed mr einstein mr einstein hello hello is that you buffy hello mr einstein if you're there could you adjust the time of fun thingy for me please it's gone funny again yeah another seance no problem so who is it tonight huh Oh, it's Mr. Irving Berlin, composer, songwriter, lyricist extraordinaire. Ah, so that is 1888 to 1989. Uh, yeah, what year? Oh, oh yes, of course. Look, let's try mid-1960s. Um, that's America, if you can get it. Oh, so you want the future. Oh, now let me see the left hand lever plus 10. Ah, should bring us to 1965. Yeah, yeah. Just take a minute to warm up. I, I believe that was an interesting decade in America. Oh, I'm sorry I missed it. Yeah. All the way with LBJ, the Kennedy assassination. And the moon landing, woo! Yes, but we're not interested in any of those events. That's the trouble with the youth of your day. Not interested in any of the important things. Oh, well, please yourself. Oh, perfect. Thanks, Albert. Yes. Hello, everybody. Thanks so much for coming. Is everybody comfy? Good, lovely. My name is Buffy and I'm your host for tonight's seance, which is for Mr. Irving Berlin, composer and lyricist. As you know, Mr. Berlin was 101 when he passed over, just 25 years ago today. So we all need to be very understanding if he seems a little overawed, you know, or fragile. We're trying out a new shortwave timeathon tonight, which means we may be able to roll back 50 years when Mr. Berlin was just about to retire. So fingers and toes crossed, everybody. Lovely. Uh, oh, by the way, from your forms, I can see you've all paid your fees in full and filled out your reasons for meeting up with Mr. Berlin. But I must emphasize that there is to be no attempt at communication at this point. If a seance is successful, we will provide another opportunity, another day for your priority seance. So if you excuse me a moment, I'll set the electrons into motion. Oh, if you find the sound disturbing, please feel free to put on the headphones in front of you. No charge! After the ball is over, see her take out her glass eye. Oh, <laughs> I think we have contact. Put her peg leg in the corner, screw up her bottle. Of die. Um, I'm not sure if we have the right year or... Uh... Stick her false teeth in the drawer. 
hang up her wig in the hall. Then all that was left went bye-byes after the ball. What? No applause? That's funny. Last time I sang that, I made a reasonable week's wage. <laughs> Times have changed. Ah, Mr Berlin, so good of you to join us. But surely that was written in 1892. Yes, my dear, but I was six. I was earning my living, busking, singing hit songs. That song was written by Charles Harris, but I found my version of the song paid better. How clever of you. I take it then that your family were not very wealthy. Uh, when you're born into poverty and live in it, you don't recognise it. But you're all right. The most important decision of my life was made by my parents when they decided to leave Timon. That was a small township in Siberia. was crowded with Jews who according to Russian law should have been in the ghettos. So my mother packed up the double bed and we came to the promised land. Australia? I hope you're joking. Oh I was a little confused for the moment. So how did you get on with the new language and school? School? <laughs> did I need that aggravation? I left it aged eight and began working before leaving home at 14. My poor mother, may she rest in peace, wanted me to stay on, learn to be a clerk, or maybe, if I'd worked hard, would have made $500 a year, the height of ambition. I was a big disappointment to her, and believe me, when you disappoint a Jewish mama, you know it. She thought I was going to be a poor bum all my life, but by the time I was in my 20s, I was making over a 100 grand, so she stopped nagging. I became a rich bum instead. But according to my notes, you started working as a singing waiter in a restaurant. A restaurant? No, not exactly. So what was it, a bar? A nightclub? No, I think a place of ill repute might describe it. But he did have a piano. As soon as the patients got home, I would sit at the piano and work out the tunes on the black keys. What about the white ones? So, I was racist. I figured I'd get around to them one day. Of course, I never did. But I got on okay. I managed to compose over 1,000 songs for shows, movies or sheet music. It just meant they were all in the key of F sharp. But they were all simple melodies, easy to hum or whistle. I challenge you to try that with any of the popular songs of today. So, can you remember the first song you wrote? Oi vey! Can you remember your first husband? Yes, it was called Maria from sunny Italy. I wrote the words and earned myself 37 cents. Was that before you changed your name? Yes, I had been born Israeli Bains. But the publisher made an error on the sheet music. Different spelling. But no worries, it was me pocketed the money. Then you wrote two more songs... Dorado and My Wife Has Gone to the Country. Yes, I knitted about $10,000 for that country one. I like that one best. About that time, George Cohen is quoted as saying, Irving Bullion is a Jew boy who plays uptown music with a downtown spirit. You became instantly popular, especially with the young female singers. 
I believe they used to fight over your songs. True, my dear, true. That's how I met my first wife, Dorothy. She knocked the other girls out cold, literally. And she could pack a good wallop, could my Dorothy. Oh, surely that's not true. Indeed it is. But she contracted typhoid and died six months later. May she rest in peace. I wrote a special song for her. It helped me get over the passing. As I recall, soon after that, you wrote the song that made you really famous all over the world. Yes, I met a young band leader called Alexander. So I wrote him a song called Alexander and his clarinet. A few years later, my very good friend Sophie Tucker sang it. We changed the name and Mosel Tov. Here, let me show you. Oh, no, I'm sorry, Mr. Berlin. No, that's just not possible. Copyright, you see, and... Don't worry, folks. The song has come into the public domain. No need to pay royalties. Well, that's most irregular, but yes, it was fun. So in 1909, you were an alley neophyte, and in 1912, you became dubbed King of Ragtime. Yes, I still don't know what ragtime was, any more than I know what a neophyte is, but I became king of it. And that's when you accepted an invitation to perform your own songs at the Hippodrome in London. But, you know, the public were so convinced I'd written every ragtime tune, they insisted I played them all, whether I wrote them or not. See what I mean? But I read that you played everything in F-sharp. Tell me, weren't you ever tempted to learn to play properly? Sure, my dear, sure. I tried once. I got myself a tutor. I even learned to use more than two fingers. I love a piano, I love a piano, I love to hear somebody play upon a piano, a grand piano. It simply carries me away. I know a fine way to treat a Steinway. I love to run my fingers over the keys, the ivories, and with the pedal. I love the metal, and when Padersky comes this way, I'm so delighted if I'm invited to hear the long-haired genius play. So you can keep your fiddle and your bow, give me a P-I-A-N-O. You see? But wait, you did have a special piano, which you bought for a hundred dollars. Didn't you have a, a lever installed that could shift the keys? Yes, but it still sounded pretty honky-tonk, so I stuffed it with feathers. But all that did was make a few chickens nervous. <laughs> anyway, I gave up learning after two days, when I figured I could have turned out two its songs in the time it took to learn how to use it. Besides, it was easy to hire a accomplished pianist. For $10, I could have had George Gershwin. Oh, surely not. Why not? He came in one day in answer to my advertisement for a pianist. But once I heard him, I told him, Son, you've got too much talent to be arranging my songs. Go and write your own. And he did.
I think he made the right decision. I think he did. Now, I've read that your music was attributed to leading to the downfall of Russia. Is that true? Not guilty, please, Your Honour. On account, I wasn't there at the time. Well, that's not what it says in Wikimedia. Wiki what? Wikimedia. Mr Einstein, could you help me out, please? What is not commonly known is that Alexander's ragtime band got the Russian toes tapping in 1911. And there was one zealot in particular who couldn't get enough. Rasputin, the mad monk, ha special classes, to learn the new ragtime dances. Prince Felix Yuzaporov, who was a Jewish sympathizer, was a friend of Al Jolson, another ex-Russian. He persuaded Jolson to smuggle him a test for recording of Berlin's new hit, Everything in America's Ragtime. It was played by the newly formed Dixieland Jazz Band. The prince told Rasputin of his new acquisition, and then enticed the monk, to attend a special supper. With Berlin's music playing, Rasputin was fed poison cakes, shot in the chest, strangled, shot twice again and finally drowned. And then he died. So, if he had listened to some of the music of today, he might have committed suicide instead. Now tell me, the year is 1917 and you are 29. You are rich, famous and idolised by millions. Yet one day you found yourself swabbing floors and cleaning latrines. Yes, I woke up one morning to find the headlines. America takes Berlin. And they had, my dear, they had. I was in the army. Whilst there, I wrote a new show called Yip Yap Yap Hank, in which I let the public know how I felt about army life. Oh, how I hate to get up in the morning. Oh, how I'd love to remain in bed. Oh, the hardest blow of all is to hear the bugler call. You've got to get up, you've got to get up, you've got to get up in the morning. I think we get the message. That show also starred your friends Al Jolson, Fanny Bryce, Will Rogers and Eddie Cantor. But the show also had the song that is now practically the American national anthem. already. I never liked it. Is that what you did? Tear it up just because you didn't like it? What's the like? Yes. But when I wrote it, I thought it sounded corny. So I didn't even bother to get it published. Not till years later. Then, when my friend Kate Smith asked me for a patriotic song for the war effort, I pulled out the old thing. And it replaced the Star Spangled Banner overnight. So I got lucky. This was probably the most prolific time of your songwriting career. But it was competitive, wasn't it? Entrepreneurs could order songs like groceries and, and have them delivered like, well, like today's pizzas. Excuse me? Is this Berlin speaking? Hey, Izzy. It's Florence Siegfield here. I've got a new review opening soon, and it's got a lot of dames without bits that cost me a bomb. 
I need an opening hit number to show them off. Uh, will you write one for me? Sure, I will, Flo. But tell me, when does the show open? Well, now, that could be a problem. See, the show opens in four days from now. Four days, huh? So you'll need it by Thursday. All right, my dear, I'll get back to you. Ah, yes, that was when I wrote... You opened up your own show about that time, didn't you? The Music Box Review of 1921. I thought it would be a monument to music, but it nearly turned out to be my tombstone. Money, my dear. I thought I turned it into a profit. Instead of water into wine, the money turned into water. Say It With Music, your trademark for many years. Now that song made you a lot of money. So who's counting? But if you'd be interested to know about that time, I began to experiment with a new kind of music they were calling jazz. Like I told them, the jazz components have not yet really begun. Jazz is the only great musical contribution of the 20th century. I wonder, was I right? Oh, maybe... But how come you didn't write more jazz numbers? Oh, my dear, great is one thing, popular is another, and jazz never brought the shekels in. About this time, a new love came into your life. You married young Ellen McKay, a young socialite, the daughter of a wealthy businessman. Poor girl, she had two suitors. On the one hand, Izzy Berlin, Jew boy from the gutter, And on the other, the Prince Regent. Poor girl indeed. What a choice. But she chose you, and you both sailed on the Leviathan for a honeymoon. Now wait a moment, the drinking song. You didn't write that. Didn't I? Pity. It was both good and popular. Now. As we docked the entire orchestra and chorus from Student Prince greeted us, you see, word had got around that there was a famous lyricist on board and they mistook me for Sigmund Rogenberg. He was six foot three. But outside of that, we looked pretty much the same. Of course, unknowingly, the world was also sailing into financial ruin. Some of your songs reflected the times. Blue Skies was a big hit. But we can't play it, no, because the royalties are too expensive. Isn't that the truth? And I didn't get a penny of it. Ah, a little problem here, a little problem there. But what's to worry? When Jolson spoke those immortal words, you ain't heard nothing yet, in the jazz singer, he opened up new doors to the way music would be brought to the masses. Sure, it was good. But to begin with, for us musicians, it was poison. Same way radio had been. See? My dear, it destroyed the sheet music industry, which is where we had made our money. Once radio got a hold, the world became listeners instead of singers. They didn't care about the words. So, to be on the safe side, I organised a system of royalties for publishers. I was very popular with musicians for a time. In your Easter bonnet, with all the frills upon it, you'll be the brand. 
is the lady in the Easter parade. Oh dear, we could be in trouble. That song could still be in copyright. Not at all. I wrote it in 1917. Only I called it Smile and Show Your Dimple back then. That song gave you trouble. In 1930, you had to go to court to defend it as it was rumoured you had plagiarised it from a 1909 tune. Ah, more aggravation. No matter. We soon sorted that out. Anyway, what's one hit song? I have plenty more about that time. Yes, in fact, in 1935, Castaire and Ginger Rogers began their dancing partnership and suddenly songs that had been whistled and sung were now discovered by dancers. Indeed, Astaire took your new ritzy numbers as his theme song. And that's when you went to Europe. Twenty years before, you'd been hailed as the king of ragtime, and now you were dubbed Emperor of Tin Pan Alley. King? Emperor? Who's complaining? But I'm told you were ever mindful of the talents of other composers. Ah, such wonderful music. I'd be so lucky as to have composed that. Excuse me, I must make a telephone call. Hello, Cole. Listen, my dear, I must tell you that I'm so impressed with your new hit. Well, thank you, Izzy. But, to be honest, I'm not that keen on it myself. What's to worry? Never hate a song that has sold over a million copies. What are you working on now? Well, let's see. I've got a few on the go. Uh, begin the begin. I've got you under my skin in the still of the night. Just one of those things. Love for sale. It's too darn hot. Enough already. Any one of those will help you keep out of the poorhouse. But this is my seance. You arrange your own if you want a little bit more publicity. Now that is an excellent idea. But where were we? Ah, uh, oh yes, World War Two brought the Americans yet again to the fighting front and you wrote This is the Army, purely for army personnel. The proceeds went to finance the war to the tune of what, a million dollars? I should complain. And that was a less successful version. They brought it out years later as a film called Holiday Inn. Which launched the most popular song of the 20th century, Bing Crosby and... Yes, I didn't like it too much at first. But after the royalties came in, I learned to like it. Now, in 1945, at an age when most men would be putting up their pianos, another strange twist came into your life. Sadly, your long-time friend Jerome Kern died. Oh, Mr Einstein, if you please? Oscar Hammerstein was contracted to work on a new musical about the American West called Annie Get Your Gun and had started work with Jerome Kern. So when Kern died suddenly he immediately asked Irving Berlin to step in and come up with some new ideas and songs. 48 hours later Mr. Berlin rang him with a couple of ideas. One was to be Annie's signature tune You Can't Get a Man with a Gun. You were on a positive roll. My defences are down, doing what comes naturally, 
the girl that I marry. I got the sun in the morning and the moon at night, and even anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. <laughs> oh, that show had more hits than Kim Kardashian had Botox. Huh? Uh, it's a, it's a millennium joke. Well, like I always say, there's always two types of music, good and bad. And I don't like writing bad. But when the show was just about complete, you were asked to write a filler to be played or sung in front of the curtain while one of the elaborate scene changes were underway. Yes, yes I did. Well, I wasn't happy with that one either. No, I still didn't like it. I say it still lacks something. Maybe I should work on it. Well, don't work on it too much. It's been doing all right for over 80 years as it is. You did have the reputation for being competitive. How did you feel in 1950 when your friend Cole Porter had a spectacular success with his show Can Can? You know, you know, I rang him up and sang to him. Anything I can do, you can do better. You can do anything better than me. Well, did you ever think of a partnership? Porter and Berlin? Hmm, interesting idea. That would have made double the money. Are you sure you're not Jewish? But Berlin and Porter would be better. With so much going on, those years must have been very stressful for you. All right, as if, remember, I am a Jew. My whole life is stress, but you are right. I had trouble sleeping. So much so, a friend came up to me one day and said, Irving, you look as if you slept well last night. And I said, yeah, but I dreamt that I didn't. And in the latter years of your life, you still wrote songs. True, my dear, true. But no one wrote shows, so they stayed in the drawer, hundreds of them. But then I'd rather be unhappy doing something than really unhappy doing nothing. Mr Berlin, your music has been loved and admired for 90 years. 2,000 songs written, 1,500 published, most of them hits. You must be very proud. Ah, I was lucky. But you know, as my mother would say, so is he. You've had more hits than anyone else, but then you've had more flops too. So, after so long as a successful composer, if you could be remembered for just one song alone, what would it be? The past is fine, but you can't live there. What's to bother about hit tunes written decades ago? I think I'd rather just sit down and write some more. <laughs> I'm sure you would. But, Mr Berlin, our seance is ended. You and all your lovely songs are gone. But the melodies linger on. You have always said it with music. And with your kind of music, the past will live in the present Forever. It's a shame about the copyright laws. Without the money grabbers on my music, we could have said it all with music. Strains of Chopin are list 
Oh, he's gone. Lights, please. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Please make sure you take all your belongings as you leave. And feel free to sign our register for future programs. Special discounts available on inquiry. Bye-bye. You have been listening to The Times and Tunes of Irving Berlin, written, performed and produced by Brianda Cross with Mark Antony as Berlin. Music by Julie Simpson and other artists who may be found on fastfictionpodcasts.com. Thank you. So say it with a beautiful song.